Hi, this is Will Chang. I just wanted to give a heads up that in the middle of this interview, I actually ended up leaving. Had a family emergency, had to call 911, and we had to go to the hospital. Lee and Andrew ended up doing a great job, and Howie was an amazing interview. Hope you guys enjoyed. This is an episode of the Will, Lee, and Andrew Learn About Web3 series. We're in a pivotal moment in time where Web3 has exploded, and a lot of smart people we know are dropping their careers to transition to Web3. This is a series where we bring on friends to learn about what's happening. Please join us on this journey as we learn more about Web3. All of this is just fun conversation and none of it is investment advice. I remember when I was playing Diablo as a kid, I must've been 12 or 13. I was playing on Battle.net and I had a character, an Amazon, that I was pretty proud of. Um, this is Diablo 2, by the way. And I'd heard about this concept of duping, right? So some guy promised to teach me how to dupe. And I joined this lobby and I followed the instructions and my body just exploded and all my items got dropped <laughs> on the ground and this guy just picked it all up and, and I, I cried. Like I remember I burst into tears and my mom came in and said, what is wrong? And I, I was... Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts here with me, Lee Chang and Andrew Su. Hey, how's it going? Today, we have my good friend, Howie Zhang. He just recently started his role as a game economy designer at Immutable X, the first layer two for NFTs on Ethereum. For the last seven years, Howie has worked at KaiX, an Australian stock exchange, first as a PhD research analyst on pricing mechanics and governance, then as a quant in market microstructure, analytics, and strategy. I'm especially excited about this one because I've been wanting Howie to get into crypto since 2017. He taught me a lot about the mechanics of exchanges as I started playing around with Coinbase Pro and Binance. So I knew this was his calling. So I'm really happy for him that he's finally made this jump. Since he started the role, he's been deep into learning Web3 and gaming mechanics. So Howie, welcome. Thanks, Will. Great to be on the show finally. Tell us a little bit about your role and what you're working on. My role as a title is Game Economy Designer. And it is somewhat of a career pivot for me. I've never previously designed a game, let alone worked on the economy of a game. But in my yeah, previous occupation, I had a lot to do with market design. And in so far as those things overlap, my, my company decided to take a bit of a, I wouldn't say a gamble, but a unorthodox strategy instead of hiring someone from a traditional game monetization background, they uh, hired someone from a traditional finance background. And that's a point I think we can touch on again later. At Immutable X, we are a NFT trading platform first and foremost. We are also a game studio and Immutable X is, there are two games that are being developed. One is called Gods Unchained, which is like a Hearthstone style training game based on NFTs. And the second, which is the unreleased game, is called uh, Guild of Guardians, which is going to be a mobile action RPG centered around a play-to-earn mechanic. And so my role as game economy designer is to design the systems and values which we expect players to interact with the economy and with the game. Going back to your job before this, how did... Immutable X see the relevance in what you were doing before 
to what you're doing now? The advent of crypto gaming, it's a pretty new thing. A lot of things about how we expect our players to be interacting are sort of theories. I see Infinity has proven the MVP of crypto gaming and play to mechanics. It's shown that people are prepared to play this game and they are able to actually earn a livable wage, at least in these developing economies. So economic flows, labor and production have been proven, but in regards to how alternative formats of these games work, those things are still largely up in the air. So given that it is a new field and a new industry, one of the things which is unproven, I feel, is whether it's going to be sustainable in the long run, right? If you know anything about Axie Infinity, you will know that there are some questions about how sustainable that economy is because it seems to be predicated on an infinite player growth model. With Keyword of Guardians, what we want to do is we want to build a sustainable economy, an economy that ideally has very high levels of player growth, but that player growth isn't vital to sustaining the asset prices. So in, in so far as we need it to be sustainable, the thinking is that we should model sustainable economies that we, we can see in the real world insofar as the stock market is a giant game that's being played across various sophisticated and unsophisticated participants, then the, the knowledge I have of vibrant market design should in theory be applicable to economy design or game economy design. And I think that's the bet that the company is taking on me. One of the things that blew my mind, or I didn't really think about when we were talking about your last role at Kayx was first of all, Kayx is like the New York Stock Exchange when you're basically buying and selling stocks. What I didn't realize about the stock exchange, it's literally a game between people trying to buy and sell assets to each other, make money off of each other. And there's a referee in the middle making sure that no one's cheating. And applying that model to a game, if it's an MMORPG, it's players that are fighting and gaining items in the game, and they're just buying and selling on exchange similar to a stock exchange, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm a strong proponent of uh, free markets and capitalism, and I believe those things are the vital ingredients um, which bring about innovation in our modern society. But what I'm also a proponent of is regulation because in my time at a stock exchange and in fact, my education background, I've come to realize that a market can only function effectively if there is the right incentives and rules to limit undesirable behavior. A, a completely free market in some ways produces some unfair outcomes. Now, at a stock exchange, you have direct control over some of the rules, but a lot of the rules are actually behoven to regulation. So you have a market regulator that actually determines what kind of incentives you can provide to your market participants. And so there's a less direct connection between the levers that you can pull at a stock exchange compared to a video game. You know, as a video game designer, I can conceivably set any rule or any incentive as long as I am optimizing for a fun player experience, then I think everything is on the table. And so that's a relatively big change for me. And it just expands the sort of space of tools and expands the design space that I can use to incentivize players and incentivize good markets to form. Before I move on to the game, I wanted to ask a little bit about stock exchanges because you 
said that there are regulations and rules to incentivize people to do certain things. Can you give us some examples? I'm going to give you one really topical example. I'm going to tell you what the differences between, say, the United States and Australia are. And then I'm going to let you know what the trading outcomes of this are. And it's quite profound. So in the US, there is this somewhat controversial incentive structure called payment for order flow. You may have heard about it in the context of, say, Robin Hood and how their business model works. As we all know, Robin Hood provides free brokerage for trading. And the first question is, well, if you're providing free brokerage, how do you make money? And the answer to that question is they sell your order flow. As a retail investor, they internalize the order flow and sell it on to a counterparty who has some trading edge from receiving that order flow. Explain the order flow. Okay, order flow is just basically your buy and sell orders. A retail investor, by and large, uses market orders. So a market order is an order that just says, I'm going to buy or sell this stock at whatever the prevailing market price is, right? Now, retail investors, because they're impatient, they primarily use market orders. Whereas more sophisticated investors, they tend to use limit orders. They tend to use orders that allow the price to come to them. So a market order is you pay a cost for the immediacy of transaction and retail investors favor this type of order, right? So the order flow that the retail investors collectively generate is sold by Robinhood. Based on the particular characteristics of retail investors in aggregate, they can statistically profit from it. And the profit that they gain is obviously higher than the cost of acquiring that order flow. So that's how the US model is set out. Now, in Australia, payment for order flow is explicitly banned. It is legal for any exchange or any broker to direct their order flow in this manner, right? The flow on consequence of that is that there is no zero-cost brokerage in Australia. There is no Robinhood type firm that exists in Australia that provides that service. And I've seen over the last three years, or five years, various different attempts to achieve what is effectively zero-cost brokerage or effectively payment for order flow. That has implications for the Australian market because we did see a huge ramp up in retail trading, but we didn't see GameStop type behavior. We didn't see Wall Street bets type behavior in the Australian market. And the reason that didn't exist is because there was a cost for trading. People couldn't just YOLO into stocks and trade in and out of it. It's got benefits and it's got downsides. And you can see how a small change in the incentive structure of how we allow our brokers to trade has flaw and consequences for the broader market. And so those little kind of rules that are set at the incentive level have tremendous downstream implications on the market level and on the types of businesses and business models that can exist. Going back to what I do at Guild of Guardians, I also think that careful design and optimization at the incentive layer then has profound downstream implications on the types of gameplay interaction that players have. And so that's what I'm super interested about doing in my role, to be in the control seat to turn levers, to experiment, to see how changing this parameter or that parameter at the macro level then influences player decisions on an atomic basis. 
now you're starting this role and a lot of things are new. You're designing a game, which you've never really done before. You're going into Web3, which is completely different from the finance industry. How are you preparing for this role? Yeah, it's been such a wild ride. I just started last week, first week of onboarding, obviously, very welcoming culture. I came from traditional finance into now what's like a, I guess, a bleeding edge tech firm, right? Doing innovative new things. And so just number one is I needed to adopt that tech mentality, that rapid iteration, rapid deployment, that rapid experimentation compared to traditional finance where, you know, five meetings spread over a month just to get consensus on whether we're going to change a, a small thing. Now it's a completely different model where it's like, go ahead and try it. And then uh, if it doesn't work, then we're going to change. That's a big paradigm shift for me, just in terms of how I operate at a fundamental level. But in terms of knowledge acquisition and exposure to new concepts, I've always been pretty bullish on blockchains and decentralization, but because I haven't needed to understand it deeply, I've just had a very surface level understanding or intuition of it. But now that I'm actually involved in this and I'm suddenly having to learn the differences between the protocols or layer one, layer two, all those, I would say quite technical aspects of the blockchain, suddenly they become, these are your mandatory learnings. So I am just in this knowledge acquisition mode where I'm learning and every single topic is just another rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole, just keep, and you really got to just like, you know, you dig down to this topic and you, you have to say, okay, I've got a better understanding of this. I'm going to have to close this chapter for a second or for a while. And I'm going to have to go down another uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> it's boundless because as you open more doors, there's more doors open. And this is something that I've been thinking about relatively recently, which is you've heard of the concept of singularity, right? It's usually used in AI contexts where if we ever develop artificial general intelligence, the AI is itself going to develop new tech and new AI at a rate beyond the ability for humans to comprehend. And they call that a singularity event, right? Where it's like beyond that point, humans lose ability to control the destiny of humanity, right? It's just going to be behoven to some unknown entity. As I'm exploring this crypto blockchain space, I don't know if this is the perfect analogy, but I think there's almost an innovation signality occurring where you open new doors and these doors just keep opening. And it's like almost, it, it just, it's quicker than you can learn and acquire. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe the learning curve is just so steep and so high that I can't see the peak yet. Maybe three months later, I'm like, oh, I'm an expert in blockchain. But I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that the landscape just evolves as you're on it. This weekend, Sorry, Harry, on. you're not the only one that feels that way. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the point where I think this podcast is going to be so valuable. I don't, you know what? As soon as I changed my role on LinkedIn, I had all these people reach out to me and say, Hey, so fascinated that you're doing crypto. I want to learn more. And like, I'm learning with you. And so, so I'm definitely going to share this podcast to all those people too, because yeah, it's something that we all have to do, right? I'll tell you off Friday, I looked up this layer two decentralized automated market making protocol called Loopring. It looked pretty interesting to me and I shared it with someone that was doing my induction with me in Middleburg. He's a blockchain engineer, so he's super technical. And I asked him what he thought about it. And instantly he gave me like two or three other alternative projects to look at. And like, 
I'm like, oh, jeez. I asked you about this project to understand this. And you did it two or three other ones. And I'm like, where do I even start, right? Every time I ask someone about something and they show me two or three alternatives, it's really that exponential rate of innovation, which is so exciting and so, so vibrant. What is your onboarding process like? As you were saying, you didn't work in blockchain or crypto before. So are they giving you a good amount of time to ramp up and catch up what you're going to be working on? Good amount of time is pretty subjective. When I first got presented with my deliverables, I was like, oh, that's pretty soon, right? My feeling was, oh, there's a lot for me to learn before I can actually complete that first deliverable. And that first deliverable wasn't that long to get to that point. But when I was speaking to people about it and expressing that, like, oh, there's a little bit of pressure there. They're like, oh, there's plenty of time. And so, so I, don't have to <laughs> I think I just really had to shift my mentality, the level that perhaps I need to understand it. Maybe I needed to learn to close chapters and stop going down these rabbit holes because I think a good enough approximation over a variety of subjects right now is probably more useful for a generalist like me than a really deep technical understanding about any one subject or matter. Because if it is so rapidly evolving, there's no guarantee that if you acquire all this knowledge about one topic super deeply, that, that's going to be really useful in six months time when the environment or the landscape shifts. If you're really comparing the finance industry versus Web3, in general, a lot of this, these finance concepts have already been around for a really long time. There's regulations, exactly. so you have to make sure that you're dotting your T's. Whereas yeah. this new space, there's so much innovation happening that there's really no way you can have a deep understanding of anything. The ground keeps shifting and you don't right. want to be as exact. Yeah, completely correct. That's one of the things which turned me off traditional finance a little bit because although I saw there was so much money and investment and pre-existing infrastructure built on the traditional finance system, I also realized that because of all that, there was just impediments to true innovation. There were so many stakeholders that had vested interests and those vested interests were not for efficiency or gains. They were just to protect their pre-existing investments. When you actually came to doing something innovative or a new idea, you would have to go through so many cons rounds of consensus and buy-in. And, and that was like the majority of the time. You're trying to get people and organizations to buy in on this. And then you have to coordinate it and make sure that everyone is doing something at the same time so that the innovation that you bring actually has uh, tractability. I saw in DeFi that all those things just happened in a completely decentralized manner, right? There was no corporate ultimate coordinator in there saying, oh, we've got to get these people together in the room and agree on this and this and this, and then we're going to launch it and we're going to spend X amount of time and cost building it. In the world of blockchains and DeFi, it was just like everyone was acting in their own self-interest and great things got done and innovation occurred. Witnessing that, I just knew that in the long term that DeFi would eat traditional finance. Let me tell you quickly about my DeFi journey. So back in 2017, when you and I were talking first about Ethereum and blockchain, and you were trying to convince me to make a start in the blockchain. I applied for Binance when they were still in Tokyo because I thought I would be able to take my background, my PhD in finance and microstructure over to, to Binance and apply some traditional finance concepts on their crypto exchange. At the same time, they got ran out of Tokyo and they went to Malta and they didn't really get back to me in a big way. So I didn't really pursue that opportunity, even though I had a friend that was working at Binance already. I didn't chase that opportunity very much. And at the same time, the onset of the bear market occurred. And at that time, I went back to Kayaks, basically got a full-time job there. Over the next three or four years, 
I saw Binance just grow and grow and grow. I saw my BNB tokens just appreciate, appreciate, appreciate. And I really regretted not trying harder <laughs> to secure that role at Binance, right? It was one of my key regrets. That was the first opportunity that I let sell by me. Like something that I knew was going to be good, but I just didn't pursue it hard enough. And so the opportunity went and I said, okay, it's gone, but what can I do? I'll look towards the next one. In 2017, I knew that DeFi was going to be an exciting thing. And so I bought all these first generation DeFi tokens and protocols like OX Relay, AirSwap. And then last year when I heard about DeFi again, I was like, oh, DeFi is taking off, right? I went back into my wallets and checked the account balances on these various decentralized tokens and noticed that all those tokens had effectively gone to zero. <laughs> they never survived, but then new generation of DeFi products had come around. So I decidedly sketched together this diagram for what an automated market maker may look like, right? So I put it together. It was before I even heard of the term automated market maker, right? I just, in my experience dealing with market makers on the stock exchange, I knew that there was going to be this kind of a service, all right? Because I, I just knew that the incentives uh, were aligned in a way for this to work. I didn't know how efficient it was going to be. I didn't know how the exact implementation was going to work out, but I just knew that eventually these markets would require one. So I sketched together the diagram, put it together, and then I punched it into Google and I saw that Uniswap had listed their tokens for a couple of months already and had been building for like a couple of years. At the time, I thought, look, it's good that such a product exists. And I jumped onto the Uniswap website to see whether they were hiring. And it looked like they, at the time, there were like 30 employees or so working out of New York City. And I, I even spoke to my fiance and asked her, hey, do you think I can work two jobs? Can I work New York hours and then go back to my day job at Trix? And she said, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I, was, I agree that it was crazy. To, to <laughs> so I just went back to my day job. And lo and behold, two years later, this concept has arisen. Uniswap is worth $15, $16 billion. It's basically like one year since I looked at it last. It's just phenomenally grown. And it just really demonstrates the pace of innovation in this space, right? That's, I can't see any traditional market maker being able to dominate such a large product category as quickly as what Uniswap has managed to do with crypto trading and exchanging. Hey, Howie. So sorry. So actually, Will just had a family emergency. Oh, okay. So okay. he's actually handling that right now. Yeah. He had actually asked us to finish the interview, but I think it'd be weird just having him completely drop off. So yep. Yep. apologies, but he's handling an emergency situation. You think that, we that's could, fine. Yeah. You think we could find another time to yeah. finish the interview? I love this. This is actually really cool. Uh, okay. Because I was going to tie it back to the in-game mechanics. But... Right. No, no, I, I absolutely look, I'm happy to. All right. Well, we'll cut all this stuff out, but how are you enjoying the new job? I'm guessing you're working remote. Or are you guys going in or? This is the amazing thing that such a company exists in Sydney. I just wouldn't expect a tech firm like this, and especially a gaming tech firm to be in Sydney. I just think maybe in Singapore, in China, in Silicon Valley, obviously, but because it's in Sydney, I go into the office as much as I can. No, no one else goes in. We're on a sort of flexible hybrid work arrangement. It's really good just to see people, everyone sort of, I'm probably one of the older people in the organization. It's interesting because my game director, the person that my boss reports to, I taught him venture capital back at uni. So what? he's like 27, 28. And the That's CEO crazy. is like 
26, the older you are, the more junior you are, basically. <laughs> well, it's up to you guys. Should we just keep chatting and then we can record yeah. and then we can probably spice it yeah. back in? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I just got this. Yeah, just questions. Let's just keep talking. If that's cool, if, if everyone here is okay with that. So you taught him, you're bringing in the market piece. Can you give us just an example then of how the game translates into the incentive structure that you're building? Yeah, let me go on about this. You guys aren't really gamers, right? I remember there's a Lee who said that he doesn't play that much games. I'm not caught up to date with most of the recent games, but a game back in the day, like Diablo. Oh, uh, right. so let's, let's talk about Diablo. Games. Let's talk about economies, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Diablo because that's a game that I, as a child, was so influential to me. I played yeah, so much of it. Yeah. I remember, okay, let me digress a little bit. I remember when I was playing Diablo as a kid, I must have been 12 or 13. I was playing on Battle.net and I had a character, an Amazon, that I was pretty proud of. Um, this is Diablo 2, by the way. And I'd heard about this concept of duping, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some guy promised to teach me how to dupe. And I joined this lobby and I followed the instructions and my body just exploded. And all my items got dropped <laughs> on the ground. And this guy just picked it all up. Like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I cried. Like, I remember I burst into tears and my mom came in and said, what was wrong? And I, I was a little bit too ashamed to admit that what had happened. And that was such a learning experience. I mean, I still remember it so distinctly, but at the same time, I learned so much from that experience, right? The balance between greed and risk and understanding that the internet is a cruel place and that you got to protect your own interests. So, so by far, the life lesson that experience has gave me exceeded the loss that I felt. You know, it's so funny because it's literally the perfect story of a childhood trauma. You took this winding path, but now you're at a place where you can actually make a difference in that exact instance. <laughs> like, yeah. And sort of happen again, right? Like, it would be very different if it was on the blockchain. Exactly. So let's talk about that experience and what could have been different. First of all, let's talk about what I lost. I lost some virtual items in Blizzard's server. So right. instead of that item, that data attributing to my character, this other guy or girl, who knows, it was now attributed to them. I didn't lose anything on monetary value. And the reason it wasn't on monetary value is basically because I couldn't really sell it or touch on about whether that is true or not. But basically, I, I, I lost some time that I had invested in the game and some pride into my character. And yet that had such an emotional impact on me, right? I, I truly thought that I owned those items and they were my property, but they weren't. They resided on business servers and, and that character could have been deleted anyways. In fact, even if I hadn't gotten scammed because I hadn't logged into servers for so long, I think my character would have been gone anyways. So the end result would have been the same with the NFT. That wouldn't exist, right? Even if the game disappears, yeah. even if the developer stops, the data that those items represents, if they're in the form of NFTs, they're permanent, right? They'll always be there. And it would just require someone else to be able to design an interface around those items and that data would still exist, right? Maybe you wouldn't be able to interact with it directly, but in some way, shape or form, it's still there. That's one key difference. Another key difference is the idea that you can get scammed. The security of something in the system being bugged in a way that makes you unwittingly lose possession of your items. I mean, there is the chance of hacks in centralized changes, but basically on a blockchain, you're responsible for your own security, right? If you divulge your private key to someone and they take your assets, then who do you have to blame but yourself, right? In Diablo's case, I trusted that their systems were secure so that 
when I followed these steps, my body wouldn't exert. Also, there was a tension where I didn't trust the system enough to think that the dupe was possible, right? The fact that Diablo was insecure in that way led to these behaviors and outcomes where people are trying to exploit and scam others, right? And coming back to the idea of, well, do my items actually have monetary value or was it just personal value? Well, they would only have monetary value if I was able to liquidate those items. Nothing has monetary value unless you're able to sell. Otherwise, it just doesn't have a price to it because the price hasn't been discovered yet. If those items were NFTs, then you could actually list them on exchange and sell them. In Diablo's case, what happened was an entirely third-party community emerged facilitated in the transaction of these items. And it was done completely separately to Blizzard. And if you've ever tried to use that system, you would realize it is so inefficient and so susceptible to more scams and you losing your assets. So it was just not a good system. And and right. at its basic, if you mm-hmm. talk about blockchain gaming, crypto gaming, if it just solves that, then it's already going to be a big improvement, right? If it just allows better trading to occur between players, then suddenly you are able to provide monetary value for something that only has intangible value before. So the market side of it is going to be important. But also, if you're able to play a game and you know that the effort of you playing this game is going to have some monetary trade-off, then you are probably prepared to to not only spend more on the game because it has more permanence, but also you're going to be so much more incentivized to engage with the mechanics of the game. And so that's going to be quite powerful. And I think with Guild of Guardians, how it's built, it's going to be built with the explicit intention that players must interact with the market. So this is kind of different from how Diablo 3 did it. Diablo 3 came about with a real money auction house when it was released. And I remember playing Diablo 3 when it was released. And that real money auction house, it was unanimous consensus that it ruined the game. And so Blizzard, after a couple of months, removed the real money auction house and it was a total disaster. And the reason I think it was a disaster is because the game was not designed with the explicit consideration of the existence of a market there. And so the, the existence of that market in Diablo 3, what happened was instead of caring about what items dropped on the ground, because Diablo is ultimately a slot machine game, right? You play the game and items drop, these items make your character more powerful. The loop of the game requires you to care about what items drop on the ground. Because without that loop, then it's just a clicking simulator, right? You just yep. clicking. <laughs> and so in Diablo 3, when they had the real money auction house, the problem was that you could always buy a better item on the auction house compared to what dropped on the ground. Because the auction house would have the pooled collective assets of every single player in the world. Whereas you are just a single person playing the game. And you eventually stop caring about what dropped in your game because... You only needed to collect gold to buy something from the auction house. And it totally disrupts the core gameplay loop, which is like you're incentivized to progress and spend time in this game in order to obtain these items. Instead, it became a, I'm going to click here to get money and then I'm going to go shop the auction, right? So the auction became the primary game <laughs> and, and the game became a means for you to collect some resources to access that primary game. And the problem is the primary game of an auction house is not fun. Right? It's, it's not engaging for players. So a game that is built with the explicit consideration of a market requires players to actually interact with that market in a way that produces more complex or more fun gameplay properties. And so one of the things that we think is required is that 
it requires a very strong social component. Instead of thinking about you as an individualist player, you need to be contributing to a social team or in our case, a guild. And that guild must have certain objectives and that guild must therefore be interacting with the market in a collective basis. Instead of you just individually trying to min-max your wealth, you as a collective entity is trying to achieve some sort of goal or purpose. And that's the kind of gameplay that we're trying to engender. That market is going to be a critical function for groups of people to interact and achieve objectives. So that's one of the key innovations that we're going to be designing into the game uh-huh. is not only is the market going to be pivotal in you obtaining the power-ups you need, but also you can only uh, attain those power-ups if you do it in a social manner, only if you interact with other players. And so that's, I think, going to add this extra complexity or depth to this type of game that is not present or can't be present in, in the, the traditional games. Correct me if I'm wrong, Howie. So what you are tasked to do is to build out the actual mechanics, like the economic infrastructure of how this would work. And then you guys would find partners, like game developers, to integrate into their system. Like you guys aren't actually creating a game yourself, are you? No, we are. The company started off as wanting to build games on Ethereum. And they created an early version of a game. And they realized that due to the high transaction fees and due to the limitations of that layer one system, it wasn't going to work. And so they realized that something needed to change. And that's why they also developed the platform that allows the game that they want to create to exist. Got it. Okay. Now the company had eventually two business units, right? You had the platform side, which is the infrastructure required to do these NFT games. And also they had the game itself that they wanted to create. And now the company has branched off into these two streams. One is what we call the studio and one is the platform. And the platform is they want to engage with anybody who wants to make NFT games and they want to provide the technology and the APIs to develop those games. In the meantime, they also commercialize that technology in their own games and bring more people into this NFT and and crypto space. So they're driving some of those advances by actually building the game themselves and seeing what is required to do these games. So I'm hired in the studio side of it, the game design side of it. And what I do is creating those economic incentives, but also just the gameplay incentives, like how many hours or how much time should a player spend in order to earn a sword or whatever. How do we ensure that that sword has value and the value of this sword is increasing as more players play the game? What values should we tweak to ensure that that thing is calibrated based on the raw economy? So that's, that's kind of novel because yes, uh, other game designers have done that in a closed end system, but the fact that each of these swords have some value that can be traded elsewhere that can be influenced by the price of, let's say, Ethereum due to external factors, how that all balances out and how those things are interrelated is one of the things that I think I see a, quite a big challenge in and something that I will need to figure out in my role. Yes, yeah, so I, I was uh, going to ask you, in, in the capacity of your role, so it's not like you are asked to consider only game mechanics. You have to tie in the fact that it is on the blockchain. Yeah, that, that would affect... Um, 
the how like the gameplay works, right? gameplay and all that, right? It's, it's, mm. Yeah, it's back and forth, right? It's how does the external economics affect the internal gameplay, and vice versa. How does this internal gameplay mechanics draw more players into the game? Like Axie has, I guess, proven that it's possible to do this, but our objective is to be less, I would say, less hyper capitalistic about it. So in Axie, uh, I don't know if you understand the model there, but basically it's so expensive to own Axies. It's like if you wanted to play Axie Infinity, I think it costs you like $1,000 to buy a team. I don't know how many people are willing to spend $1,000 to play a game. Obviously there is a lot, but we want it to be free to play at the start. The idea is, look, you can play completely free and you can advance through content. But if you want to interact with the economic system, the guild system, and you want to get ownership into these assets, then you probably need to spend some money to interact with those systems in a fully fledged way, right? As to how much money you need to spend to interact with those systems, that hasn't been decided. And I guess that's one of the things that I will contribute to, but we expect it not to be expensive. It should have a really low barrier to entry if players want to engage with those systems. Is this really more of a freemium model then? Yeah, look, I, I think there's going to be a freemium base that it's going to be built on. And then I want to see how that can change. Like it could be freemium, but we really want to iterate past freemium, right? Freemium is like, okay, well, it's free for you to start, but you eventually get incentivized into paying to play. The, the innovation there is, well, if we incentivize you to pay to play, what if instead of us charging you, we just collect a fee for each transaction you make, right? That changes the freemium model a little bit. It's like you pay $10 to, let's say, get a item and that item is worth $10, right? So as a developer, I literally don't extract any value out of that transaction. But what if every time you sell that item, we collect a 2% transaction fee or something like that, or a 5% transaction fee. So it does flip that a little bit right? It's no longer $10 out of your pocket is $10 in the developer's pockets. It's more like $10 out of your pocket is now $10 into uh, another player's pocket. And then based on the ongoing community and ongoing dynamics that we interact, we extract a persistent fee for providing those services and providing the infrastructures on which this game is played. And I don't know whether that's the direction that we're going to expand in, but it's certainly going to be somewhat different to the freemium model. That makes sense. I assume you have, let's say five guesses or hypotheses on models that will work. And so I think we just heard one of them, which is the goods they purchase are fairly priced and it's not necessarily money immediately, but the contract for that good is when they transact it in the future, you get a percentage. Yeah. How do you test the model? How do you test each idea? Yeah, so that's, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how we're planning to test these ideas. The idea would be first run it on a limited scale and then see what players are responsive to, see whether they're sensitive to changes in these parameters, right? Like if you tweak these transaction costs, so this is a lot of where my, my economic background may be of assistance where I can say, well, tweaking these parameters are probably not likely to change it much. But if I can implement a payment for order flow type system into the background, maybe that incentivizes certain desirable properties. Right? Maybe incentivizes more market makers to be prepared to provide liquidity to these items. Or maybe adjusting that lever down would allow more organic 
liquidity to exist. Maybe the pricing will be fairer, et cetera, et cetera. That's all things that we have to experiment. I, I see each of these design decisions as a little economic experiment that you, you run. And the, the thing is, in traditional finance and economic systems, you don't have these levers to control, right? You can't run these experiments because it's not ethical for you to randomly change tax rates or randomly change interest rates in order to see how the economy shifts. So in economics, why it's called the abysmal science is because, you know, it's just run on a series of like natural experiments. There is no super controlled, randomized, blind study that you can perform or you can only perform it in these kind of simulated scenarios, right? With this game, there isn't these kind of ethical considerations, you're bound by what's going to make your players upset. So you can't, you can't go too far. Um, you can't break the game completely, but you have these leaders. You can change these things and you can see what the outcomes are. And that should allow you to learn and iterate and improve on these systems until you get something that is tractable and workable. And maybe none of these ideas that I have right now will work, but I'm confident that as long as you keep incrementing and adjusting and pivoting and optimizing to the values that you need, you'll eventually figure it out. Are there platforms or services that can be enabled by AI in testing these theories in gameplay based on what human decisions might look like? I'm thinking about vehicles. When that burst onto the scene many years ago, there were a bunch of new companies that came out building these virtual simulation environments mm. where crews and Waymo can go test their cars in simulation of real life situations and all these yeah. edge cases and how it reacts. So is there something like that for gaming? I don't know. Maybe it exists in some analytics team at like EA or Activision. Yeah, probably in-house. Yeah. yeah, it might be in-house, but I don't know. Maybe it will depend on a game-by-game -game basis. I don't know if the incentives have ever been strong enough for players to behave in a very economic fashion. I I'm sure when you have a gameplay balance change, it changes the behavior of how gamers play. But in so far as like an economic gameplay, I, I, I don't know of anything that exists. And certainly if NFT blockchain takes off and the economic incentives are very present in these games, then, then maybe you can start really building this database and that can then flow through to the real world, right? Each game can be thought of as mini experiments that tell us how players react to changes. One of the ideas I had that I thought was really exciting is monetary policy, right? In this game, there's going to be a form of monetary policy being exercised because the game is going to buy back tokens and that's going to just create this inflationary pressure on the price of these tokens. And that is basically pretty money, right? When the Fed buys up bonds, then that's their pretty money. And that's analogous, right? Depending on how much money the developers buy, that's going to affect the money supply in this game, which is going to affect gameplay characteristics. And I think that's going to be such a fascinating experiment to run to see whether there's going to be some meta game that's going to be played between the developers and the players themselves. And I don't know if that's possible with traditional games, right? This is why I said at the start of the interview is adding that economic layer can potentially expand the design space. It adds another dimension of gameplay on top of all that is already built into freemium games. Now, I am concerned. There are psychological studies that show when someone is incentivized to do something that they would otherwise have done anyways, like if they're incentivized to do something monetarily for something that they would have done anyways, they actually underperform in that original task. Have you heard of that, that concept? Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I am a little bit concerned that if you're going to play a game anyways, and now can earn money playing it, are you perversely now disincentivized to play the game? But, you know, games like Axie Infinity show that it may not apply for this type. And also I'll, I'll bring another example is, did your parents play Mahjong? Not me. Not me? Okay. Mahjong, I, I remember my parents playing Mahjong and Mahjong always has a gambling component to it. There's a monetary component to play Mahjong. And that monetary component between players is completely absent in the modern video games that we play. That monetary component doesn't necessarily need to be seen as gambling. Because in Mahjong, what happens is you play against people who are similar skill level to you. Like no one's going to try invite someone who's too much better into their Mahjong game because they're going to just, you know, collect all the or revenue. So in that sense, there's a matchmaking function inherently built into the economic incentives of the game where you don't want to play against a player who's too much better than you and players who are not as good as you won't want to play on your table. And so that economic system has value because it creates the balancing aspect of the Mahjong metagame. Now, that kind of economic balancing, that economic dimension doesn't exist for any of the games that we currently play. And, and so it, it could provide some unknown tangible value to how games are played. And, and just by adding that ingredient into it, allowing players to trade in a way that's decentralized and not in the developer's own control is going to be quite powerful. It's going to be quite revolutionary because so far developers have closed off their systems because they want this, they want the money to stay in their economy. And what these crypto NFT gaming projects are saying is basically we're going to lower those walls. We're going to let you're going to be able to take that asset of yours. You're going to be able to monetize it. You're going to be able to take it out of the economy whenever you want. And so, I mean, I think the games need to be better and there will be more competition between games. I, I think the next era of these crypto blockchain games will be as fun as these games, if not more fun due to that. Yeah. So is Guild of Guardians, is that out now? Can we know it or no. it's not out yet? Yes, yeah, so it's it's getting sp- scheduled for, a, I think, a beta release sometime early next year, Q1 next year. You just got to get to market quick. But the game has already been in development for two years. We have an advantage there, I guess. These days, I'm looking at the space and it's just constantly new games coming out. And I, I think the AAA developers, they definitely have plans on the horizon. And when those developers spin up, I think it's going to be really tough to compete. If you have a first movers advantage and you can collect those players onto your game, it's going to be such an advantage later on because these network effects are going to be built into your game already, right? Yeah. So, so we'll see how this space evolves in the next six months. It's going to be exciting because out of all the use cases of crypto and going back to that Diablo example, it already has a use case. For gaming, it's needed this feature for a long time and, and finally it's come and that's why you were just seeing this rush into this area, right? And you guys must have experienced it yourselves in the US. It's just been talked about constantly. Whenever talk, people talk about NFTs, crypto, gaming is at the forefront of every single conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm excited. I can't wait to see all the innovation and especially this type because I think a lot of the games I'm seeing now, they have extremely high cost to entry. That's the thing. I can't remember where I heard this. It might, might have been from the the Tim Ferriss podcast, but basically the idea is the fact that there's such high barriers to entry and there's still so many players and people entering it and excited about it shows that it is a great product, right? The fact that people are willing to go through, and this is just true in the early days of the internet and similar for gaming, you have to jump through all these hurdles, 
tolerate all this buggy crap in order for you to play the game or access the service. And you did it anyways, just because it was so good. I think that's a strong indicator that it's got potential and it's got legs. Once you optimize that and once you facilitate it, that's when the growth will come, right? You've got so many areas of low-hanging fruit that you can improve and everyone can contribute and try to like improve that. Totally. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. You can find show notes, links, and contact info for us and our guests at our website, willandlee.show. We love feedback, so please feel free to drop us a note with any thoughts or suggestions. Lastly, if you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you adding ratings to our episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.